That was a fantastic argument. <laughs> Who do you think is right? Uh, I hate to say it, but Jeff. Oh my yeah. God, Dom! You are no <laughs> longer you are no longer immortal. Welcome once again to Thirty Two Thoughts, the podcast. As always, presented by the GMC Sierra Merrick, alongside Friedman and Dom Schramatti, our producer. Uh, we have a lot to get to. A very busy Thursday night around the NHL. Uh, and a pretty newsy day as well. But let's start with the news of the week that carried into Thursday night uh, and saw the St. Louis Blues beat the Ottawa Senators 4-2. to two. But before we get to that game, and congratulations to Drew Bannister, his first win as a head coach in the NHL, your thoughts on the Craig Berube situation, Elliot? We haven't had a chance on this podcast to talk about it. Uh, surprised many, if not everybody, when the, the news came down after the Detroit Red Wings loss that Berube was dismissed as head coach of the St. Louis Blues. Your thoughts on this one after a couple of days, I suppose, to digest all of it. Well, let's be fresh. Let's go with the latest story first. I, I think that's the best, and that is Jordan Cairo and, and the booing of him on Thursday night. So are you good with that for me to start there? You can start wherever you want. There's a number of different entry points in this story. So let's start with with Cairo. When when I read Cairo's quote online on Thursday morning where he's where he was asked about Barube and he said, I've got no comment. He's not my coach anymore. You know who the first person was I thought of? Who's that? Did you ever watch the Wayans Brothers or In Living Color? Not frequently, but I did watch In Living Color, yes. Did you know who Fire Marshal Bill yes, was? Yes, of course, Jim Carrey. Yes, and what did Fire Marshal Bill always say whenever he <laughs> was about to blow up a room or anything like that? Uh-oh. <laughs> That yeah. was my reaction. When I saw Kairu's quote, my reaction was, uh-oh, because I knew that was going to be a problem. Like, like the thing is, maybe some Blues fans had gotten frustrated with Barube, but the moment he was fired, Doug Armstrong nailed this in his media conference. The moment he was fired, he wasn't Craig Barube, coach of the struggling Blues anymore. He was Craig Barube, the guy who coached us to the Stanley Cup, the only one in our franchise history after 52 years. And no matter what was happening this season, in the eyes of the Blues faithful, Craig Berube was now a man to be remembered with that great legacy. And, you know, you know, here's the thing about Cairo. I, I have a friend who always tells me his goal every day is to not be that guy on the internet. And, you know, I, in my career, have been that guy on the internet once or twice. And he looks at me and he says, I do not want to be you when you are in that spot. And, and I kind of laugh about it. It's not easy in the moment, but you, you, your skin toughens up and, and you move on, right? So Jordan Cairo, you look at his career. He's a really good player. Um, he's been a, he was a good junior player. He was a Team Canada player. He's been a good player in St. Louis. He just got signed to a great deal and good for him. But he, you know what, Jeff? He's never been that guy on the internet before. Like even on all, like the teams he's played on and the situations he's been in, he's never sort of been the guy on the spotlight. He's been an important guy. Um, he's been a core guy. 
but he's sort of never been the number one person who you look to and say, that's the guy on the blues. And then that day, because of one short sentence on Thursday, all of a sudden, for the first time in maybe his life, he is that guy. He's that guy on the blues, and he's that guy on the internet. So, you know, he even talked about it. He, he talks about in the post game about how he goes to sleep for his daily nap, and he wakes up, and it's exploded. And he did not know how to deal with it. And then the fans start booing him. And you saw how emotional he got in the post game, and he broke down. I mean, it's just tough, right? Like, you know, I love playing here, so it's just it's tough to hear the fans booing me there. Sorry. They'll obviously come around. I mean, they know you want to be here, play hard, and produce for them. I mean, do you feel like you know it's just a bump in the road that it can be overcome? And they'll love you again. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, like I said, I just want to focus on my future and focus on, you know, trying to be a more complete player and, you know, what I can do to help the team win, right? So, yeah, that's just my goal right now. Now, I think there's a lesson to be learned here. And the lesson is, you know, look, look like, I think number one, the lesson is when, when Barube was fired, the first player I thought of was Cairo. And I said this, I think, on my NHL Network hit because it was pretty common knowledge. And, and if you follow the Blues at all, you knew that the relationship between Barube and Cairo wasn't easy. And it doesn't mean that Barube hated Cairo or anything like that. It's just that Barube felt that Cairo had to be a, a tougher player to play against for the Blues to be successful. And they didn't always connect. And, you know... Did they butt heads? Absolutely. Did Barube mean well? Absolutely. Did Cairo always understand that Barube meant well, but it was his way of teaching hard? I'm sure he didn't always see it that way. Um, and then in that moment, he dropped the ball in his quote, and then look what happened. And he's he's never had to handle anything like that before. And now that it's over and he apologized and he got emotional, I think everybody will move on. I think there will be a lesson to people. Um, you know, the, the tough thing about this, as I, I always say from a media point of view is, I always say, Jeff, if we're going to call them boring, we can't be upset when they tell the truth. And Cairo on Thursday morning, he told the truth. And he got kind of burned by it because he wasn't expecting that reaction. I think the lesson is, um, like for I bet you a lot of young players are going to look at that and say, I better have something to say. I think this is going to boil over. I think this is going to move on. I think the way Kyra reacted in the post game will make the Blues fans understand that he really does care and he's sensitive to their feelings. I just think there's going to be a lot of young players and maybe a lot of veteran players are going to look at this in the future and say, I better have something better to say than that, even if I didn't get along with the coach 100% of the time. Now, that was the story on Thursday. The other big story of the Thursday is Drew Bannister with his first career NHL win. Congratulations there. 4-2 over the Ottawa Senators. Um, in a pretty spirited game, Robert Thomas scores a pair of goals. There was a, 
a really old school dust up between oh Tyler goodness. Tucker and Brady Kachuk. Holy smokes! And the Kachuk family's in attendance, and it's uh, it's technically a road game for Brady Kachuk, but he's home. He's in St. Louis, and whenever you know, Ottawa was losing, Jeff, like I know three Brady, or four to Brady one, Kachuk, I know. Uh, okay, I know. I, I'm looking at him like, <laughs> oh, his head's about to explode. Yeah, it's it's well, the fight when Ottawa was down two or three goals late in the game. You know it's coming. He's an old school player. Like he is a a total beautiful throwback hockey player. Brady Kachuk is, uh, so no surprise there. But listen, all of this was under the umbrella of Craig Berube's not there anymore. There's a new coach, and it's a coach that has the interim tag. We're used to that in St. Louis. Craig Berube, yep, uh, himself had the interim tag. Um, but just y- your thoughts on on a crazy week in St. Louis with the Blues, the coaching situation, the Doug Armstrong press conference, uh, I think had some twists and some turns and some interesting, you know, introspection by Doug Armstrong. I think a lot of us were surprised when he talked about, you know, if I, you know, looked at, you know, where the Blues were when I took over to, to where we are now. I I don't see us as, as much different. And, like, there's a lot of, he like, said, really. When you take over a team, you want to leave it better than when you found it. Yeah. And I don't think I'm saying that right now. Yeah. It's like a lot of things that we don't normally hear from a general manager we heard in that press conference. What did you make of the week that was in St. Louis? I, I think Armstrong was pretty honest. Like the the one thing I really liked about that Blues group when they won the Cup uh, that year in '19 was it was a pretty blunt group. Armstrong is blunt. Barube is blunt. Um, you know the the people they had behind the scenes, like Keith Kachuk, worked for the organization. Then Al McInnes worked for the organization. Uh, then Larry Plo was around the organization. Then they're all really blunt guys, uh, really blunt people. And they considered that one of their strengths. They used to talk about their meetings where the truth got told whether you could handle it or not. And that's kind of the way, Jeff, that I prefer things myself. Um, you know, Bob Plager, you may want to throw Bob Plager in there too. He's yeah, Bob Plager in there. Yeah. Like, you know, I remember when I was early in my broadcasting career, I was told I wasn't good looking enough to be on television. Now, I know everybody listening to this cannot believe that anything like that could ever be said to me, knowing I am a 56 out of 10 and, wow. and the, the Tom Cruise of sports <laughs> reporters. Twisted but Steel and Sex Appeal, let's go. That's me, 200 pounds of Twisted Steel and Sex Appeal. and But but for me, I've always preferred that. I've always wanted that. And like that's one thing I liked about talking to people in that organization was they were always that way too. You got the truth whether you liked it or not. Barube delivered it to the players, and Armstrong delivered it in general, and he did. And he did it. You know, I, I he did. He said a lot of really interesting things on Thursday, basically about you know they lost three games in a row to undermanned teams, Columbus, Chicago, and Detroit. And, and he basically said, if those guys are like, I can't believe we, we beat these guys because we're shorthanded and we played last night and they didn't. You know, he basically said, I, I couldn't stand watching what I was seeing anymore. And, you know, the one thing I really believe about Barube is, you know, I think that if I was a player, and God knows I'm not, but I think if I was a player, I would, that's the kind of guy I would like playing for because... 
Um, look, I know in life what I do well and I don't do well, and I don't need a lot of people to tell me that, but sometimes I do need a kick in the ass. And Barube is that kind of person. The challenge with coaches like that is that they they run out of time. Like you, eventually you reach, if someone nags you all the time or someone is on your tail all the time, Jeff, you, you get tired of hearing it. That's why both our wives hate us because they cannot stand <laughs> listening to us anymore. Yeah. But I, I really do think the people I talked to about what happened in St. Louis, most of them said to me, Craig Berube just hit his expiry date. He pushed them and he pushed them and he pushed them as far as he could and they couldn't listen to him anymore. It was just time. In my blog, I wrote about the Larry Bird rule, three years and done. Well, Craig Berube got five. And, um, you know, he won a cup and they loved him for it. The players, the fans, I just think he ran his course there. The other thing I will say about the Blues is that if you go look at the underlying numbers through Sport Logic or some of the other teams told me this, they're a mess in their own zone. And, and Doug Armstrong kind of said that. He said, our defense and goalies are made to look bad about the way we play in our own zone they are going to have to change the way they defend their own end of the ice. Um, the, the point about the coaches, that is well told. I think that makes, you know, um, you know, the situation in Tampa, for one, so remarkable. But you're right. Like, it seems as if, as we all know, the coaches have shelf lives. Um, but it seems as if after three years, four years, there's, you know, the analogy that I used on, on the radio today was too much water at the wine that the potency of the the message just isn't there uh, over time. It, it does tend to get to get watered down. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens here. I, I think that we've all done the, okay, so what led up to this decision? Where did things begin to fall apart for the St. Louis Blues? And, you know, when you fire someone as, as beloved as Craig Berube and you have a press conference, the likes of which we saw from Doug Armstrong, you start talking about, okay, where did things start to unravel? And I think we've all sort of pointed at the uh, the Alex Petrangelo situation and, and that contract negotiation. And it's funny, too. I, I talked to one manager tonight, and we were talking about the Blues, and he said that's one of those situations where the minute he's gone, like the second he's gone, you start regretting it. And you say to yourself, ah, now we've got to deal with what life is going to be like without Alex Are you talking Petrangelo? about Petrangelo? I'm talking about uh, Petrangelo. Know, he, he, I will have this debate with you. I think from an on-ice point of view, I agree with you. And I don't think the St. Louis Blues have been the same since Alex Petrangelo left there. But I am not convinced that Doug Armstrong regrets that. And the reason I am not convinced that Doug Armstrong regrets that is because when they let Petrangelo go, why was it? It was because, yeah, because they felt they were giving him more power than say the owner of the team right and i just don't like i think philosophically like you look at all the contracts the blues have given out since then they've never passed what petrangelo could have gotten so what that says to me is that was a philosophical decision like everybody has their red lines that they're not gonna cross right and that was doug armstrong's red line i am not crossing that 
And if you take a look at it, there's some no trade clauses clauses that these players have, like Cairo and Thomas, who are their highest paid players, do not have clauses. Now you could argue, if you wanted to, that their contracts are no trade clauses. I don't know if I really buy that argument, but some people do make it. I'm with you. I I, I hear that. Mm, I know what you're saying. I'm with you. But he has never bent what he refused to do with Alex Petrangelo. So I, I think I, I know what you're. I know totally what you're saying. It changed the culture of the Blues. They've never been the same team, and I think they regret it from an on-ice point of view. But I don't believe Doug Armstrong regrets that decision because I think that's a, a line he won't cross. I understand that. One, one of my points through all of it is you have your captain, a guy that just helped you win the Stanley Cup, a player that's going to help keep you competitive. And what you're arguing about is essentially he wants a promise that he's going to be able to stay that he wants his roots to get even deeper in St. Louis. And I think that, you know, obviously if they, they would have re-signed Alex Petrangelo, I don't think we'd be having, like, I don't know what would have happened with Craig Berube regardless. I don't know that I want to do an A to B between the Petrangelo discussion and the inevitable firing of Craig Berube. All I know is I don't think we'd be talking about, you know, the dismantling of the St. Louis Blues as quickly as we have been if they would have re-signed him. Yeah, I, I, like that's, that, I understand that's where that. it all started. It changed the course of the franchise, and it changed the course of the Vegas franchise, too. I, I get that, but I just wouldn't say that. I don't think he regrets it. Okay, from the St. Louis Blues, we'll go to the Vancouver Canucks, Elliot. And uh, this whole night, first of all, perfect that Thatcher Demko, the 36-save shutout for nothing over the Florida Panthers, because Thursday night was the night of the Ring of Honor ceremony for Roberto Luongo. The goal scoring kicked off by Andre Kuzmenko, uh, which was a nice touch, but this was Lou's night. Number one, Ring of Honor, your thoughts. Once again, I think the Canucks do this very well in the sense that they don't have a quote-unquote professional do it. They, they kind of have another player. For example, Bieksa did really well, obviously, when the Sedins uh, did it. And in this one, Corey Schneider was kind of the ringleader. I really like the way that they do that, that it's kind of the player's night where they kind of run the show. I, I, I really enjoy that. I thought it was a great night. Um, I thought Luongo hit all the right notes. I really liked what he said about how, you know, the, the Canucks fans deserve what they're getting this year, a good team and a passionate market. I just, uh, I just want to start off by saying that I'm so happy for you guys. Hockey is fun again in Vancouver. I always love the standard line. I hope you do really well, except for tonight. <laughs> and of course, the Canucks go out and ruin yeah. it. Um, that's a sign of a good team. Uh, when uh, you you sit there on an emotional night and even though the motion really isn't intended for you, you go out and you grab it and you run with it. But, you know, I, I thought it was a really special night. I don't, like, I would just say in general, I don't understand, um, I don't always understand the idea of retired numbers versus honored numbers or, or ring of honors. Like, I, I think Luongo's numbers should be retired in Vancouver. 
I think there's players in Calgary who have their numbers honored, not retired. And I think they should change that. I think they should retire those numbers. But overall, I don't want to think about that. I just want to think about what a a really good night it was. And, you know, the thing about Luongo, and I think any Canuck fan knows this, I think about this a lot. I think some players, and Matt Sundin in Toronto was one, and Luongo in Vancouver was another. I, I think sometimes we let the noise, and I think about this with myself all the time, we let the noise get to us and we think it's real and it's not it's a loud vocal minority and i think the vast majority of people recognize when you are putting in an effort and one thing that luongo has said and Corey schneider actually said this about luongo is that i wish he would have enjoyed it more in the moment because he gave a great effort for the Canucks and, and the vast majority of fans recognize the effort he gave. And uh, I think that's what this night was about, is that after he left and years later when Luongo realized that, he finally got to go back under those terms and understand how much those fans really liked him. And I, I thought that was really important. Do you have a thought on the sports talk radio protein shake that Luongo gave on Thursday night? And the last thing I'll say is, let's free the skate jersey. Thank you. Oh, that was good. I like that. Giving sports talk radio in Vancouver about two weeks worth of content. Thank you, Bobby Lou. <laughs> yeah, that I was loved really it. good, I thought. <laughs> that was awesome. That was fantastic, Elliot. I love like that. That was true, Roberto Luongo to me. That was great. I I just loved it and enjoy dining out on that one. Uh, Sports Talk Radio in Vancouver. Um, <laughs> okay, four nothing is the final score there. Thatcher Demko, what a perfect cap to the evening. Thirty six saves, as I mentioned, it's a shutout, and the Vancouver Canucks continue to roll. Wait, can I just say one thing about Vancouver? Yeah, go for it. Enjoy your happiness. That's a good team. Oh, absolutely. Enjoy it. Just enjoy fun, it. And it's a fun Don't team worry to about watch. trades. Don't worry about the cap. Don't worry about anything. Yeah, Just I don't, enjoy it. I don't know if. I don't know if many Canadian hockey fans. Dominic are just wired. texted us and said, I know, we, don't we don't know, know how. how. Uh, well, that's the thing. I don't know. This is for a bigger conversation. I don't know if Canadian hockey fans know how to just enjoy it. Well, in Vancouver right now, you should learn. <laughs> Nobody thought this team would be good this year. Just yeah. enjoy when you have something that's nice. The you moment you start to say, yeah, but, yeah. stop. Stop. How long have you shared oxygen with us here in Canada, Elliot? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm trying to change people's behavior. Okay, well, good luck with that one. Um, the other place where they can't enjoy anything in hockey is Toronto. And yeah. you worked the Toronto-Columbus game. Or should I say, you worked the Toronto-Columbus games yes. on Thursday night. How many different games were there in that game? Well, there were two. 
Uh, there were the first 40 minutes and the last 20, and then the next 20, and I guess there were three, actually. Yeah, and the, then overtime. the overtime. I mean, Toronto was awful. It's as, as bad a game as they've played all year. They were down 5 nothing after two. Just horrible, horrible performance. I couldn't believe there wasn't a goalie change. I really couldn't well, believe we'll, it. Well, we'll get to that stunned. in a second. But the worst thing is that uh, Justin and Nick, who are generally captains negative about the Maple Leafs, <laughs> were making all sorts of excuses for them. You know, the flu, or they're tired, and it was just the dad's trip, and and, yeah. and the old Jeff Merrick, oh my God, that tough back-to-back road trip <laughs> from Long Island to Madison Square Garden. I believe my example was Buffalo to the Big Apple, but nonetheless, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it's that, that tough three-minute flight, yes. Anyway, they were horrendous, and it, it was interesting. They came out in the third period, and, and Justin was sitting there, and he goes, okay, they score, and they go, if they get the 5-2 with about 15 minutes left, um, he goes, they, they could do this. And they get to 5-2 four minutes in, and then he's like, if they can get to 5-3 with 10 minutes left and it doesn't happen, and they get they get the five three with five minutes left, and then Justin's like, "When do they pull the goalie?" And they get to within five four with one fifteen to go. And the moment that happened, I was like, "They're gonna tie this. We better be ready for overtime." And, and they did. And you know, Nylander said after the game that in the intermission, second and third, they challenged themselves to say, "Let's get twenty shots." But what that said to me is, and Columbus is one of the worst teams in the third period in the NHL. What they said basically was, we're down 5 nothing, but we don't think these guys are that good and we can make a run at them. And they did. They tied it before they lost in overtime. And that would have been an absolute disaster for Columbus. Like a, like a total, total disaster uh, for Columbus. And they found a way. Kent Johnson, who's had a tough year, but it appears shot. to be going in the right direction. He had a fantastic shot oh, to win the game. What a shot. But, you know, like the, the thing is, too, is that initially they were going to make the goalie change, and Curtis Sanford, who's the goalie coach there, was like, nope, we leave Samsonov in there to battle with his teammates, which I thought was a really interesting decision. It's not one that I would have made, but it worked out well for Toronto, even though they lost in overtime. That was a crazy crazy game and now ryan reeves got hurt and patrick line got hurt um it, it was a costly game for columbus um but they got the win which is good for them because i would not have want to seen the reaction if they would have blown that game to me i knew columbus was going to win when nylander put it between the pads of elvis merzlikens and it didn't go in it felt like, okay, nothing's going in here because Matthews had fired a couple of rockets and they didn't find. And then Neil Anders slides it between the wickets and it just squeaks to the side of the post. At that point, I said to myself, this ain't happening. And to be honest with you, when Wierenski was on that breakaway, I thought that was going to be it. I'm like, Zach Wierenski's winning this thing. And then when you give that kind of time and space to Kent Johnson and let him snap it like that, Oh, what a shot. That was it. Goudreau yeah. had a great chance too and just put it high and over the net. Like he had he had he had a really good opportunity. I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention Winnipeg as well, even though they didn't play on Thursday. 
They got a huge win down two nothing over oh. to uh, L.A. Gabe Velarde. Gabe Velarde in his return four gets points. four points, and they win. They win five to two. That that's a big win in Game One of the temporarily without Kyle Connor era. Like that was just a a massive, massive victory uh, for the Jets. I would love to see Vancouver and Winnipeg and Edmonton two seven game series out of them. Yeah, what's not to like about that? Yeah, I I think Winnipeg's a really interesting team too because, um, you know, right now the Jets are kind of playing some of their young D to find out exactly what they've got. Uh, it's it's pretty interesting there. Like they're going really well. What it seems to me is that Kevin Chevaldeoff and that team are trying to figure out their future defense on the fly. Um, they, they've got a good team. They're giving it a good run in their division. I really like their forward depth. Unfortunately, Connor Hellebuck's playing great. And, you know, they've got two defensemen in Dylan and DeMello who are up after this year. They've got some young kids who want the opportunities. They've got Schmidt out of the lineup, although I think he's going to play again. I, I, I just find it really interesting. They're going well. And they've bought themselves some time. And I think they're trying to figure out what their longer-term defense is going to be. So it's it's kind of one of those things where you're you're trying to win and you're trying to figure some some things out for the future all at the same time. Okay, Elliot, I want to get to the Minnesota story here, but uh, one more game to go over. The uh, The winning streak is over. For the Edmonton Oilers, with a win on Thursday night, they would have leapfrogged over the Arizona Coyotes and into the wild card spot, but it is not to be uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Just reminding everybody again, you know, there's a there's a great story about, uh, that Marty McSorley tells about when he joined the Edmonton Oilers. He was a young gunslinger, and um, Dave Semenko, the late, great Dave Semenko, was there and wouldn't let Marty fight. And then one day, after three or four games, Marty was always eager to fight, and he came into the dressing room and... Dave Semenko was sitting there taping up his wrists and he said, Marty, every now and then we must remind them. And tonight we're going to remind them. (laughs) And on Thursday night, the Tampa Bay Lightning reminded us how good they can be. 7-4 is the final. Four goals for Steven Stamkos. Uh, Good performance by Andre Vasilevsky. And the Oilers winning streak ends at 8. You know what else they reminded us? When they lost 8-1 to Dallas, and they had Dallas later that week, someone said to me, I'll bet you your favorite number, $110 billion, (laughs) that Vasilevsky is going to beat Dallas. And he did. He shut them out. I'm concerned about Tampa's depth. I I think they still have a lot of skill, a lot of elite-level skill. They have a great goalie. I just don't think they're deep enough. And they got tuned for 57 shots, like the ice was tilted for the Oilers. But once Vasilevsky showed that he was going to stand in there, you could see their confidence really grow. And Skinner had a rough game. He took the blame at the end. He's been very good lately. Um, but like this Tampa team, they're they're going to be a headache just because of who they are. They got to find depth. If they find depth, 
that's how they become a handful. Impressive victory Thursday, nonetheless. Okay, Elliot, let me get to the Minnesota Wild story. And this was a week of surprises, a surprise in St. Louis and a surprise in Minnesota. Um, midway through the week, assistant general manager of the Minnesota Wild, Chris O'Hearn, uh, and the organization mutually agreed to part ways. Now, it seems very much in this story like there's not enough water getting from the river to the village. It seems like this thing is bigger than what it appears right now, which is only a headline, which is Chris O'Hearn is out as AGM of the Minnesota Wild. From what you've been able to piece together so far, and I'll throw in the caveat, knowing that there's probably bigger parts of this story, or at least more parts of this story still to come, yeah. what have you been able to put together? Well, I don't know Chris O'Hearn very well at all, but I know people who know him, and they were shocked when it got out that he was out. And, you know, the one thing that Mike Russo put together in particular that I had trouble with was I didn't realize there were two investigations going on or that two investigations had occurred. I knew there was generally one, but I didn't realize there was two. And the way Mike wrote it, and obviously I take him at his word because he knows that organization very well and he's done some good work, is that it appears the first of those two investigations focused on O'Hearn and the second of those investigations focused on Bill Guerin. I still have no idea what happened with O'Hearn. And like I said, people are stunned because if you would go through the NHL and say, uh, this is a person who was guilty of some behavior that could result in a mutual agreement to walk away, he would be very low on the list, very low from what uh, people seem to tell me. So, you know, people are shocked and, you know, maybe someday we'll get some clarity on that. Now, Garen, as, as Russo reported, there is an investigation going in accusing him of verbal abuse. And, you know, Mike's story had said that, indicated that Garen was going to be able to move past it. And that was something, you know, he'd probably have to undergo um, some classes for or something like that. But Mike wrote that, that Garen was expected to continue working. Um, I, I don't know that. Um, uh, but I don't have any reason to dispute Michael, Mike Russo. I just haven't been told that same thing. Um, the one thing that I had heard that Mike hadn't written about is that because this is a staff member who had connection to the players, I had heard some players were really upset about it. And again, I don't know what the truth is. I'm not passing judgment uh, one way or the other. Um, I just know that I'd been told that some of the players were upset about it and the Wild had to manage that. Um, you know, there have been some times in in Minnesota's history, especially recent history, where the players had real big say. Um, you know, Ryan Suter and Zach Parise aren't there anymore, but they had real big say when they played there. And while those personalities are gone, I still think that kind of way is still a bit in the organization. And I was told before all the books got closed on this, um, some of the players who were upset might have to be sated a bit. And 
Um, so that's one of the things that I, I was kind of waiting for an answer on. So again, I, I'm not saying that, you know, Bill Guerin was right or wrong here. I, I know there was a complaint. I know he was under investigation. I don't know at this point in time where this is all going to go. That's where I think we are at this point in time. I really don't know what else I can say. The story clearly um, not over yet. We'll see where this goes. Okay, Elliot, let's wrap up A Block here by going over some of the news that you talked about in your latest blog at 32thoughts uh, at sportsnet.ca. Shane Pinto returning to Ottawa. We all know that his suspension will eventually be over and he'll be welcome back to the Senators with a new contract. Heading back to Ottawa soon? Yeah, game 42 for the Sanders is on January 21st. It's against the Philadelphia Flyers. They have a bit of a unique situation that they've basically played fewer games than anybody else, and so they have to catch up. So he's eligible to play against Philly. There is a stipulation for suspended players that you can return. I think it's like 10 days before uh, you're, you're first allowed to play and you can start practicing with the team. But Pinto has to get back into uh, Ottawa, find a place, um, start working out, get, you know, reinsert himself into the city, kind of. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression it's getting very close to do that. Like the agent and the team, they aren't talking about it, but I heard it this week uh, from someone that he's going to be going back. And I would assume... Um, that th- he will sign for the remainder of this year basically on his qualifying offer. Again, I, I don't know that. Nobody's confirming that. Um, and, and unless they come out with like a surprise multi-year deal here, um, I, I think he's going to sign uh, for the rest of this season and then we'll see. But but the one thing that has not changed to me, Jeff, is that I, I don't have anybody telling me that he is not part of of their core. I still think they consider him to be a key part of their group as the Senators grow. Uh, do the New York Islanders consider Zach Parisi a part of their group? He is skating again. Yeah, you know, I know some people have seen him skating. I, I believe it's at Shattuck St. Mary's, but I don't know that for sure. He went um, there, by the way, for those that don't know. Right, of course. He played with Crosby there, right? So, um, uh, and, you know, he's a Minnesota guy, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, obviously it's the Islanders, so nobody knows what's happening. It's all locked away between one uh, person Lamorello's does. ear. <laughs> yeah, one person one does. One person does. And, and you know, I, I don't know what this is going to be, but I just think it's interesting. He's skating, and people believe if he's going to play this year, it's going to be for the suddenly surging Islanders. Oh, yeah. No kidding. And suddenly surging Noah Dobson, boys. He yes. Ever- uh, looked good. Um, okay, uh, the Seattle Kraken and Philip Grubauer. So they officially announced him on Thursday as uh, week to week, um, but uh, that would be good news for uh, the Kraken. I think there were some worries it could be longer than that. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. It's definitely going to be some time, but they got a, a big shout out the other night from uh, Joey Decord. And uh, Chris Drieger, who's one of my uh, guys I really like dealing with over the years, he ends up coming back up from the American Hockey League, and uh, I hope it works out for him. But uh, he's going to miss some time, uh, Grubauer, and I I think there were some fears it could be longer than that, so hopefully week to week turns out being uh, a good diagnosis for him. 
Okay, well, uh, we'll cross our fingers there for the goaltender. A couple of appeals. Well, one appeal and potentially one grievance. We'll start with the appeal. Uh, David Perron and the six gamer. What are the issues around this one? We saw Alan Walsh pretty much show us on Twitter the other night what the appeal is going to look like. Uh, what are some of the other avenues and issues involved in this one? Uh, you know, I, I think the the challenge here is, um, you know, I, like I think at the end of the day, the Red Wings understood kind of that Perron was the only guy facing some discipline. I heard when they kind of decompressed and and looked at the overall situation, they they, they understood why things worked out the way they did. Um, but I think they were hoping that Perron would be a little more lenient than six. Like someone said to me, the Red Wings were kind of hoping they might he might only get four. Um, instead, you know, Thursday was the third game he missed. You know, you've said it before on this pod. We've already seen two appeals this year with Rasmus Anderson and Charlie McAvoy, and both times Gary Bettman backed George Peros. And I don't think anyone expects... Uh, any uh, differently. And so I think we all think that Batman is going to back Peros and keep it at six games. I actually wondered if they would make it five so that there wasn't the chance for the independent arbitrator, but they didn't do that. And the other thing too is very clearly Perron is upset because, um, you know, Alan Walsh, he would not be doing that on social media if his client was not on side. You know, for everything that's happened in, in Walsh's career, he always makes sure that he asks his client, are you okay with this? So I think Perron is probably very upset too, considering he had no history. But where Perron could potentially win is with the independent arbitrator. We have seen a couple of cases in recent years where there have been reductions. We've, had, we've seen other cases where the independent arbitrator has stayed with it, but we've seen two big reductions. Dennis Weidman... Went from 20 games to 10. Tom Wilson went from 20 games to 14. The problem with that was the timing. By the time Weidman got won his appeal, he'd already missed 19 games. By the time Wilson won his appeal, he'd already missed 16 games. So they end up missing more games than penalized, so they get money back. But you, as far as I know, aside from H.G. Wells, Jeff, no one has invented a time machine. So I, I think the, the tough thing for Perron here is, is this going to go through the appeals process before six games are up? And that appears to be unlikely. So he might, might get money back. Unfortunately, he won't make up the time. And, you know, the, the thing about Walsh is, you know, that's his personality. That's who he is. The one thing someone did say to me is, do you think Alan Walsh takes it seriously when he tweets about concussions in CTE? And I said, yes, I, I don't think he's doing that for effect. Uh, I think he's a, really a true believer in the dangers of concussions and, and what they can cause. But I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, whether it's the league in the hearing with Batman or the league, if it goes to an independent arbitrator, says, you know, here's all your tweets about the dangers of CTE and concussions. How can you be fighting this when a player could have gotten a head injury from it? And so, you know, I think this is going to be uh, quite the process and we'll see where it goes. Just as a quick aside, I've always wondered this and I like asking people this question. Nothing to do with hockey. You mentioned time machines. If you had the ability to either go into the past or into the future, which would you choose? 
Boy, that is a great question. Oh, man, you just blew my mind. Now my head is spinning like a top. <laughs> this podcast could go all sorts of different directions here. Well, I, I asked Dan Carlin when I hosted an event with Dan Carlin, legendary podcaster from Hardcore History. I asked him that, and he said, into the future. And I said, why? He said, uh, dentistry was horrible in the past. That's the main reason. Um, but to me, it would be the past as well. Because I like the element of surprise in life and I don't want to know what's going to happen in the future because I like to be surprised. I think it's one of the great things of life. Um, and there's a lot of questions I do have about the, I would the say past. probably so the, the past, past too. Um, I would probably say that, but at least you made me think for a second there. <laughs> Might be the first time since I've known you that I've made you think, but nonetheless, there we go. Okay, um, from appeal to grievance, to Corey Perry's situation, um, even though Corey Perry may not want this story to continue, um, the NHL Players Association, I think we can all assume, is not really interested in this case being used as any type of precedent for the future. What's happening here? Yeah, I, I think the issue here is that um, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Generally, if the Players Association is going to appeal something, they want the player to be on side. And one case where that didn't happen was Patrick Berglund in 2018. The Players Association wanted to appeal that, and Berglund just didn't want any part of it. And I remember having different conversations with members of the Players Association agents at the time, and they were angry about not being able to pursue that one. Um, now I think at the end of the day, they realized they just couldn't win it and that's why they didn't, uh, pursue it. Uh, but they wanted to, and Berglund just didn't have his heart in it. So they weren't, they didn't have a chance. You know, I've been writing again about that. And I had a couple of people reach out to me this week and say to me that, they really feel that even if Perry doesn't want to do it, and as I sit here doing this with you, I don't know what Perry's feelings are, that even if Perry doesn't want to do it, the Players Association has to. And I want to make one thing very clear here. I think I have a good idea of what occurred, but I don't know 100%, so it's dangerous to guess. Um, I don't want anyone to think I'm minimizing what happened or um, you know, trying in any way to to obfuscate what may have occurred. But there is definitely a feeling here, rightly or wrongly, that when you look at some other terminations that resulted in settlements, this incident didn't carry the weight of some of those situations. Now, again, I'm saying that not being 100% privy to all the details. That is definitely the feeling, however, that um, for whatever exactly occurred here, you cannot let it stand as a precedence for teams to terminate contracts. So I do think the Players Association is weighing grieving it, even if Perry doesn't. The other thing you can do is with the league, and the league has to agree with this, you, have, you can negotiate a car, what's called a carve-out, where it's a one-time deal where the two sides agree that this cannot be used in any future negotiation. Now, that has happened before. Um, I'm just searching for some of the exact cases. But for example, like they have done one-time things in the CBA before. During COVID, like contracts end on June 30th every year. That year that COVID hit, 2020, they moved it to October 30th, 
for one time only. Last summer, they made a deal for on-ice workouts in the off-season. Who could be allowed on them? Because normally, uh, team personnel are not. They allowed skills coaches who are affiliated with teams to go on, and they were trying it for one summer only. Now, obviously, this is a much bigger issue, um, so we'd see where this goes. But there are examples of that, and I do think one way or the other, the union realizes in this case it's going to have to say that the specific incident here cannot result in a termination in the future. Elliot, let's finish up the uh, the A block of the podcast here by getting your thoughts on the NHL skills competition, the revamped format for the skills competition. Uh, 12 All-Stars competing for uh, points in eight different events, a million dollars on the line here, half to the player, half to the player's charity of choice. This very much looks like hockey operations is back in charge of the skills competition. Yes, it is. And, and after last year, there was a lot of blowback about the skills competition. And I have to say this, I didn't hate the gimmick events as much as some other people did, but some people really hated them. Like, I laughed at the dunk tank last year. I I thought it was good. But the overall pacing last year, um, just the fact that the crowd, like, there were people in the building in Florida, but not everyone was in their seats. And it it also took a long time. Like, there was a lot of blowback. So this year, you know, one of the things we did on the Thursday night regional broadcast against Columbus, Toronto, is that if they did – a specialized event at Toronto, what would it be? And I said, who can finish construction first? Because then you would become the god of Toronto. But they <laughs> they absolutely said, we're going back to just hockey skills. And, you know, the thing is, like, I, I knew McDavid played a big role. I know we talked to Steve Mayer about it, and there were other players did too. I think Matthews did, but obviously McDavid's like the big guy, right? And so, and I heard he spent a lot of time talking about how to make it better. But the other thing too they wanted to do is they wanted to cut it. They didn't want everyone doing it. They wanted uh, to streamline it for time. They want only a certain number of players doing it, but the buy-in had to come from your number one guy, and that's McDavid. And he said, yes, I will do the event. So I think it was two things. Let's get his feedback, and let's make sure he's all in. And McDavid agreed to do both. And, you know, as we all know, um, when your number one player is invested on doing things, oh, yeah. other people will fall in line. And, and McDavid, to his credit, saw the importance of it. The only bad thing is now he's going to have to talk to Scott Oak like 11 times. <laughs> uh, he's the clubhouse favorite uh, very much going into this one. Uh, it sounds like, like uh, put it this way, like, I'm I'm actually excited about the skills competition. Like, you know me, and I've always lobbied for the specialists and all that. Like, hey, let's see Martin for take a hard shot here against, you know, uh, Ryan Pulak, for example. But I, I like the way they're doing this one as a competition where the players do all of the skills instead of just specializing and there's something on the line and you funnel it down to a winner. I think it's a really intriguing idea. I, I like the way this thing sounds. Uh, and that will take a break. Uh, Montana's thought line to come next. Some intriguing questions and find out if Elliot could only have one jersey for the rest of his life, what would it be? That's next. Keep it here. 
Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay, Elliot, time now for the Montana's Thought Line, which has become a staple. Mm -hmm. Uh, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue. Try the ribs. 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca, 1-833-311-3232. Try the pecan salad. (laughs) 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca, 1-833-311-3232, as I try to gimmick up everything. Okay, Lance in Edmonton submits this one. Okay. I like questions like this. First of all, the preamble's interesting. Hey guys, Lance in Edmonton, try the ribs and the deep fried pickles. Coaches ruin everything. You plan, God laughs. Your university sucks. No, your university sucks, etc. He's obviously listened for a long time. Uh, I'm wondering if, in this age of analytics, do coaches and players, if they know in advance the referee pairings mm-hmm. they will have before a game, will they adjust accordingly? For instance, these guys are a little more lax and we can be more aggressive in the corners and in front of the crease, or these guys call more penalties and we need to be on our best behavior. Thanks, guys. Great job. 100% that happens. I I know for sure these teams know referee tendencies. These things are kept track of much better than they used to be. For example, scouting the refs is an excellent, excellent resource yes. in terms of telling you some tendency about referees and what they call. And there was one coach who showed me a book once. He said, you can never use my name until I retire. And they're still coaching. But he had a book on each referee. This is what their temperament's like. This is what they tend to call. So in a world where everybody is always looking for that 1% of an edge, 100%, they are on top of this information. That is a great question. Uh, Tim in Maryland, go Caps. Hey guys, Tim from Maryland, longtime listener, love the pod. My question is, if you could own only one jersey for the rest of your life from any franchise during any period of time, what jersey would you own? You don't have to name the player you'd want on it, but if you do, my only stipulation is that the player actually played for the franchise. This counts for situations like Hellebuck on a Thrasher's jersey or Ray Bork mm-hmm. on a Nordique's jersey. Great job, Jelly Dom. That's sticking. Thanks again. <laughs> you What's your answer? I got two. Okay. <laughs> well, Ham- Hamilton Tigers. Uh, Hamilton Tigers, I would want. That is um, a team that later turned into the New York Americans. That was a team in the NHL in the 20s um, that went on strike for more pay. They added six games to the schedule, but refused to pay the players more. So the guys went on strike, was the first work stoppage in the history of the NHL. And interesting about the Tigers jersey, no one has been able to find one. There have been documentaries, Elliot, made about finding a uh, finding a Hamilton Tigers jersey. Do they even hmm. exist anywhere anymore? So Hamilton Tigers, but I'll tell you, from the early 90s when I was at university, I don't think I missed more than a handful of Guelph Storm games. And I would get a Guelph Storm early 90s, probably like 92, 93 or 93, 94 with, are you ready for it? Because he was my favorite hockey player on the team. 
Okay. Jeff O'Neill on the back. Jeff O'Neill was your was your favorite player? On that team, yes. He was so good, Elliot. That's gonna like, go as a right junior to hockey his head. player. I know widen the door frames that fit in his head. It's gonna it's gonna swell, but he was exceptional. Like there were a lot of good players on that team. First of all, I loved that jersey. I loved the gray and blue and red. I loved everything about that jersey and Jeff O'Neill was the guy back then. So I'll take a Jeff O'Neill Gulf Storm jersey from the early nineties, knowing full well, yes, I'm going to hear about this. <laughs> um I mean the obvious one is a Team Canada 72 Henderson jersey or something like that. But I wanted something that was a little bit different. And when I thought about this, I came with a Wayne Gretzky Indianapolis Racers jersey. Oh, WHA. Great if I could, well, it's oh, also his, his first pro call. team. Yeah. The first pro team, the, the team that everybody forgets, didn't last a very long time. But an Indianapolis Racers a Wayne Gretzky jersey, that would be awesome. Can I add another jersey, Vaslav Natamansky from the Toronto Toros? That's that's all. You, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot. Um, mm-hmm. There there's a lot. But that's a that's a great question and that's a great call. Those racers jerseys uh, were gorgeous. Um, okay, here's an interesting one. Derek in Calgary, in true millennial fashion i was gaming slash talking with my friend nathan on tuesday while we both watched the flames golden knights game on our phones after sharon govich's late tying goal was reviewed the referee said we have a goal (sighs) nathan commented he thought it was weird because they usually say we have a good goal i asked if he ever listened to 32 thoughts and he replied no hopefully that will change Uh, (laughs) so then i had the pleasure of explaining the lore behind how merrick is the sole reason that nhl refs no longer say good goal i don't think that's true by the way oh i I don't think that i don't think that's true i don't i do and it's not it's not ego boosting i actually think that these guys are playing with our brains yes okay well okay well let's just see if they are because something that derek submits here is a challenge He replied that if he was an official and he heard that, namely Merrick complaining about, you know, calling it a good goal versus a goal, he'd double down and start saying, quote, we have a good, good goal. Anyway, just wanted to pump Jeff's hires a bit here. Great job, everyone. So if any, and we know that officials listen to this podcast, if you really want to stick it to me, don't just say we have a good goal. Say we have a good, good goal. Double down on it. What do you think of that, Elliot? Uh, remember when I said I didn't think it was an ego boost? Now I think for you, <laughs> it's an ego boost. Uh, okay, let's get to... Actually, I want to knock down a question here. Let us get to... Uh, a voicemail, Jacob in Sunrise. I'm sure you guys were all watching Sunday's Panthers Jackets matinee, but for those that missed it, I wanted to call in about something I'd never seen before. In the third, former cat Erica Branson jumped Nick Cousins and racked up 27 penalty minutes, including the only fighting major of the play, resulting in a seven-minute Panthers power play. I'm curious, when was the last time we've seen a non-coincidental fighting major? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, guys. First of all, I want his voice. Seriously, he should be a broadcaster. He should be the hosting Panthers this should podcast. find this guy. Look out, Steve Goldstein. You're in big trouble. Yeah, man. This guy's got the pipes. Um... Uh, Okay, so I heard this one and immediately got to researching. And by that, I mean 
I sent the text to Steve Fallon from Sportsnet Stats. And Steve, like, right away fired it yeah, back. he's really Steve, on the ball. He's on it. So I can't take any credit for this. This is all Steve Fallon. Gabriel Landeskog, Colorado Avalanche, November 27th, 2021. So it does happen. Uh, it just happens. It's rare. Infrequently. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Elliot, how about this one? Nate in Cleveland. Hi, guys. Love the pods. Always a great listen. I've been loving the weird and off-the-wall questions lately, but this one isn't too crazy. Sorry. What exactly is a PTO or a free agent tryout? As a Pens fan, Mark Pissick was on a PTO, got hurt, came back, and was released. Now, Plyarvi is listed as a PTO, presumably as insurance since Rust recently got hurt. Is there a certain length a player can be held to a PTO, like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge quote, hey, this player is probably going to miss some time, so we'll get you signed as soon as he's officially on LTIR type situation. Thanks in advance. Great job, Jeff and Elliot and the Immortal Dom. Oh, I didn't know you were drinking from that fountain, Dom, but very good. Good for you. All right, what exactly is a PTO or a free agent tryout, Elliot? Uh, a PTO is when somebody's brought in and there's no actual written contract, but the team can have you come in and practice with them or, you know, basically it's we're dating, but we're not engaged or married. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Um, Curious yet well-behaved. Yes. We're just seeing each other. (laughs) What is it that you're actually dating now? The third date. So you're Uh, before the third date. Now they can go on for a long time. You'll remember a few years ago, Scott Gomez uh, signed a PTO with the Islanders and, and he was on it to like December or something like that before he signed. So there's really no um, level as long as the player and team is comfortable. And also if you sign a PTO, it doesn't mean that you have to sign with that team. A few years ago in the exhibition season, Scotty Upshaw was on a PTO, I think with Vancouver and he ended up signing with St. Louis. So it's even though you're with one club and generally most people who sign PTOs do do it with that team, it doesn't mean you have to when you're ready or if you get another offer. It's not binding. And as our producer Dom refers to it, he says, boys, it's called a situation ship in our group chats. Well, I got to say, it's it's a good thing I'm not <laughs> out there dating right now because the way it sounds, I don't have a chance. Oh, no. I would be swept up by those sharks chewed up and spat out single for life that's what i'd be <laughs> joseph in northern Vermont. oh my god merrick like this is like this is like a thousand <laughs> questions this is more questions than i've asked in my life this is interrogation get in the chair get the spotlight on you roll up your sleeves here's a cigarette here's a cup of coffee you just start answering elliot oh my god uh, greetings from as northern vermont as you can get yes that's right i'm a bruins fan and I'm helping all of our beloved border guards make sure Habs fans remain <laughs> on their side of the line, which can be very difficult, but they are very clever. Anyway, want to thank you for the quality conversation about hockey. show has been a bit of an escape for me and listen to every second that Jeff isn't talking. Hey, I don't think I like Joseph in Vermont, but I digress. Last night, I was teaching my buddy's 16-year-old son about the greatest sport ever gifted to humans, and he's a beginner. So as the night went on, we watched the highlight of Brady Kachuk's shootout attempt Tuesday night against Pyotr Kachetkov. Yeah. After the attempt, he looked at me and asked, so the goalie can just take a dude out? This got me wondering, what are the actual rules for a goalie making contact with another player during a shootout? 
I know during the course of play, a goalie might stick check a player setting up in the slot or just outside the slot, brackets, which is a slot area, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, bud. Uh, but can a goalie just come out and blow up a shooter on a penalty shot? Again, thank you so much for all you put into the show. You guys, including Dom, are awesome. This is an interesting one. Yeah, I have to tell you, I I watched it a bit more, and I thought Kachuk should have been given another shot. Okay, so see, th- this one to me comes down to... I thought he tripped him. He goes for the right skate. But the thing is, though, if it were a breakaway, it would have been a penalty. But because it was a penalty shot, it's not. He gets another because, chance. No, because the puck is off of his stick. The yeah, puck is, I, I'm the, not the, so the, sure. The minute, Don't you think he's trying to make a move? I understand that, but the puck slides into the goalie while he's on his feet and he's trying to make that move. Once he loses the puck, the yeah. shot is over. So yeah, but no, but here's the thing. No, no, I disagree with you on this. Okay, I don't think he shoots the puck. I think he's trying to make a move. He doesn't shoot the puck. He loses the puck. No, he loses the puck into Kachekov. I don't think so. I think he's preparing to make a move, and he sees Kachekov going for him, and he loses it. Like he loses his focus on the play. I don't think like. With all of the things that we now allow on shootouts, do you really are you prepared to stake your reputation on the fact that he had completely lost control of the puck? The puck was no longer on his stick; it was in the goaltender's chest. But he did not have the minute it was in the goaltender's chest because the goaltender was in the faceoff circles. No, no doubt he was. No doubt he was coming, and that's. But the thing is, like, here's the thing: if that is a breakaway. Yes. Then I think it's a penalty. But if it's but you a know what happens shot, on a penalty shot over. if he trips a guy. If he it's trips over. a guy. No. But, but the thing is, if he trips a guy, do you know what happens? He gets another chance. I understand that. But the problem yeah. is the shot is already over before he trips him. It is like it is the 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 slimmest of it is the slimmest of seconds that we're counting here. But the puck is off Kachuk's stick before he gets tripped. Yeah, and on I, a pen- I, and, and for a penalty shot or a this. shootout, hang on. For a penalty shot or a shootout, the minute he loses control of that puck, who said he lost the control? Shot is over. That's my judgment on it. And that's obviously the official's judgment on it. Well, you're well. all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at it again, just as we do this. He no, loses I, control. I don't. Of the puck. I don't think so. I disagree with that. I don't think he loses control of the puck. I'm glad we did the 97th question of this podcast. <laughs> I don't think Again. he loses control of the puck. I think he's trying to make a move to go yeah. around him, and I think because Kachekov comes out as far as he does, and Kachekov yeah. trips him. Like, do you disagree that he tripped him? He tripped him after the puck was in his chest. Yes, okay, that's why. Just, I'm, hang on, hang on, hang on. No. That's why I'm saying if it is a breakaway, it's a penalty. No, but because I it's disagree. a penalty shot, it's not. I disagree because the with play you. is and over. I don't, the question I don't is think, at what point the play ends. I think the play he's is trying over. to make a move. I, I think I. You cannot tell me at high speed that that was not instantaneous. I, I think he should have been given uh, another chance because clearly like he doesn't even go for the puck. He goes for the right foot. I'm watching it again right now. Like it's an ingenious move by Kachekov. Mm-hmm. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. It's an ingenious move, but I really thought Brady Kachuk should have been given another chance. To me, the ingenious move is Kachekov recognizing that if it were a breakaway, what he was doing would be a penalty. But the fact that it was a penalty shot, 
the minute that the puck is off of Brady Kachuk's stick and he loses control of it, the entire play is over. So he tripped him after the play was over. Therefore, yeah, I, no I disagree. I disagree. I think it was in progress, and I thought it should have been a do-over. And you're wrong, and anybody who who agrees with you is wrong. And anybody is, who agrees with me is right, yeah, and yeah. I have ruled on this situation. Uh, we talked about officials listening to this podcast. If any are listening right now, please feel free to chime in. And this is the part <laughs> where I tell you, Elliot, if you were right, I'd agree with you. That is the Montana's Thought Line, presented as always by Montana's Barbecue and Bar. Elliot's wrong. Home, Canada's home. <laughs> For barbecue, we're back to wrap up the pod in a moment. Elliot Sidney Crosby. We've talked a lot about Sidney Crosby. We're still talking about Sidney Crosby. We're still going to talk about Sidney Crosby for a long time. But as it relates to right now, uh, Wednesday night, more heroics from Sidney Crosby. Three points against the Montreal Canadiens. 12-round shootout, Montreal and Pittsburgh. Jansen Harkins, the hero there. But Sidney Crosby, uh, at his age, um, is doing remarkable things. And I think we're all on the same page. We would hate to see the Pittsburgh Penguins squander a great year like this Mm -hmm. from Sidney Crosby because I don't know how many more of these incredible years we can get. But if there's anyone you don't want to bet against, it's Crosby. Your thoughts on 87 right now? MVP, I know we're only 30 games in. Uh, do they have, see you and I sort of differ on this one. You think they have to what make the playoffs shocker. and I don't, I don't, I don't think you necessarily have to make the playoffs to be an MVP. There's nothing in the actual description of the oh. trophy that says that. So I am sticking to the actual definition, but for you, they have to make the playoffs. I do think so. I'm just, I, 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 I although, you know, although look, there's, it's happened three times ever. Twice in a six-team league. And the last time it ever happened was Mario Lemieux in 1988, and they missed the playoffs by a point. And that was the one that snapped Gretzky's streak, right? 168 points in 77 games. So there is some precedence for this. I don't know. Look, it happened. Also, it happened a couple of years ago. Adam Fox won the Norris in a year the Rangers didn't win the playoffs, and that was a hard one for me. I voted yeah. for him. I voted for him, but it was a hard one for me. I admit it. It was. I don't know. Hard trophy not making the playoffs. That's hard for me. Hard trophy. I can at least be part of the conversation. I think it's ridiculous whether you're voting on the Norris or the Selkie or whatever Calder. Uh, that you have to have a self-made qualification, that you have to make the playoff to win any of those trophies. Hold on one sec. I, I, I just w- want to say I hold the heart and the Norris separate than the other ones. Why the Norris? Because... Do you think that's the heart trophy for defensemen? Yes. Even though some defensemen win the heart trophy, I see that as the heart trophy for defensemen. Do you see the Vesna as the heart trophy for goaltenders? I don't vote on that. The GMs. No, I know, but I'm, but I'm, but I understand that. But do you see it? Because I don't have to care. La 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 la. I don't have to care because I am not voting. (laughs) Okay, fine. Okay, I'm just, I'm just curious how you see the control. What I can control, Jeffrey. Okay, all right, very good. Um, I the the one thing that I look at with Crosby again, I, I mentioned this off the top of this conversation. 
I don't know that Kyle Dubas feels more pressure because Crosby is having this season. I would just hate to see this season squandered because what we're seeing out of Sidney Crosby every single night is a guy that's saying, and I love this, just like we've always talked about Peter Forsberg and never quitting or never trying to take a step back. This is Crosby saying, I don't care how old I am. I don't care how old everybody is around us here. I don't care what everyone's saying around us here. I'm going to go and have an incredible season. Every single night, I'm going to play like it's game seven, and I'm going to try to drag this team into the playoffs. I don't know if there's more pressure on Dubas because of that to make sure this season isn't squandered, but I just think that considering Crosby's playing like this, I would hate for the Penguins not to make the playoffs. See, I I think with Dubas, he is tasked to do two things at once. Keep the team in contention while building up the foundation. That's what I believe his mandate is right now. He's got a seven-year deal. So he has to walk the tightrope of keeping the team in contention while Crosby and Malkin and Latang and the addition of Carlson are still top players, but also building them up for the future. It's a hard one to do, but that's his mandate. That's his mandate. So you've got to stay in it while you're not going to have the top picks, at least not intentionally. Crosby to me, like that game on Wednesday night, on Wednesday night hockey, like he owned the ice against the Montreal Canadiens. That's how good he was. And I do think generally, look, if, if he has a season like Lemieux did in 88 and they miss the playoffs by a point, yeah, I'll, I'll look at it for sure. But to me right now, I, I don't know that there's a player more valuable to his team than, than Crosby. Okay, so we'll look forward to watching Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins facing off against the Toronto Maple Leafs on Saturday, one of five games on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, You can also watch the awesome Noah Dobson. Boy, has he been good. And the New York Islanders facing off against the Montreal Canadiens. It is Colorado and Winnipeg. Tampa faces off against Calgary. And the Florida Panthers facing off against the losers of one in a row, Edmonton Oilers. Enjoy the weekend's worth of hockey. We'll talk to you on Monday. 